You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Uh, If we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Mulloyan, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors uh, along with John here uh, at Liberty Church. And grateful to have you with us, grateful to have you with us who are uh, tuning into our live stream from wherever you might be this morning. Uh, This morning's sermon, along with the next two weeks, should be considered PG-13. If you're on our our email list, you will have hopefully seen that in the email that came out this past Thursday. Uh, Though we won't be overly descriptive or certainly not sensational, uh, we do want to speak candidly about issues related to human sexuality. Uh, And so as always, you are welcome to use your discretion, those of you in particular who are parents with with children, uh, of whether or not to have your children listen in. Uh, but, but we want to use this opportunity as elders to encourage you, uh, those of you who are parents and have, have children, uh, whether it's now or another time, uh, find and create opportunities to discuss topics like gender and sexuality and marriage and singleness. It doesn't have to be now, but, but please do that and pursue that. Faithful discipleship as we seek to follow the way of Jesus uh, means that we can never let those be taboo topics. We can never be silent about uh, those things. We can never just let, uh, just hope that our kids kind of figure it out um, from other sources or influences that they might have in their life. We want to find and create opportunities for that, and perhaps this uh, will be one such opportunity. Uh, today we're going to talk about gender, uh, what it means to bear the image of God. Uh, and, and even more specifically, uh, what it means that when God made people in his image, he made them, as we'll read in just a moment, male and female. For some of us, uh, this is not like just some kind of cultural topic or issue. Uh, for some of us, this is your life. This is your identity. Uh, maybe you have never felt at home in your body. Maybe you have always felt with some kind of odds with your, your biological sex. Uh, as one author put it, for many transgender people, their body is like a suffocating costume that they are unable to take off. I just want to put that before you this morning. Some of you know that personally. Others of you might not. But just think about what that might be like to have your, your body be like a suffocating costume that you're just never able to take off. And if that's you, if you relate to that in any way, there's an immense risk, there's an immense vulnerability to even consider opening up about that, and especially so in a church setting and with other Christians. Because if we're honest, Christians have not always been known for their humility and their love and their receptiveness to hear things like that from other people. And so some of you, no doubt in my mind, uh, have been hurt, Uh, have been humiliated, have been misunderstood by Christians. And I don't presume this morning to think that that can't or that won't happen here. Like we're some kind of magical group of people that never would hurt or offend you in that. Uh, In fact, I'm confident that if you do take that risk to open up and to share that with people in this church family, we will say things that we should not. We will put our foot in our mouth at times. There's a good chance I'll even do that sometime this morning, in the next few minutes. But I'm also confident that silence is worse, uh, that silence actually hurts 
everybody. So even though we're going to stumble through this, um, if we're going to pursue faithfulness to God, if we're going to pursue loving presence among people and in this world which God has made, uh, we need to talk about things that are hard to talk about. And so my commitment, and I would implore all of us to make the same commitment together this morning, is that we will not depersonalize gender dysphoria and transgenderism and reduce it down to be just an issue. Uh, That we will always see people, people who are made in the image of God, and that we will pursue walking in truth and walking in love as if the way of Christ has real consequences for real people in their real lives. Because indeed, it does. The way of Christ has real consequences for real people in their real life. We're going to look at a few different texts today. Uh, You'll be able to follow along as I go, but let me just pray for us uh, before we jump into those. So pray with me. Lord, as your disciples said to you when you had hard words to share, life-giving words, but hard words, They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Help us to acknowledge and to see that this morning. Help us now to hear and to obey what you would say to us today, trusting that it is good, truly good news for us and for the world. We pray that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Three things uh, for us to consider today. Design, dysphoria, and some direction. So first, design. design. In order to, to faithfully understand and to faithfully steward our identity, our gender, our sexuality, uh, we need a really deep anchor in God's design, uh, in how God created the world, and how he created humanity. And we read about this at the, at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, uh, and then I'll skip down to Genesis 2, uh, beginning in verse 18. So Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, and the, the Hebrew word there is for humanity or mankind, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Skip down to chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
And this is God's word. Uh, before we unpack these verses, let me just define a few terms uh, that we will use during our time this morning, just so we try to stay on the same page with each other. Uh, when I refer to someone's sex, uh, it refers to their physio- physical, biological, anatomical parts, uh, sexual and reproductive organs. When I refer to gender, uh, it's more the immaterial aspects of their identity, the, psych- the psychological and the social aspects uh, of who they are. Dysphoria, then, would be distress or incongruity a person experiences between those two things, between their biology and their identity, their immaterial parts. And a trans person uh, or a transgendered person is someone whose sense of personal identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex, uh, or as it's often phrased more and more culturally, uh, the sex assigned to them at birth. So uh, the difference there between dysphoria and a trans person, a trans person is not just experiencing dysphoria, but is identifying differently. Uh, And then may or may not pursue physiological changes, things like hormone therapy or reassignment surgery, in line with that different identification. So does that all make sense? Those are just some really important terms uh, that that we want to lay out at the beginning so that we stay, stay on the same page. In Genesis 1... We read that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. Um, God, speaking plurally here, which is most likely the first reference to the Trinity in Scripture, you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect loving community with one another, saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So in a way that's distinct from all the rest of creation, people are made in God's image. We resemble God with a unique glory. Our capacity for reason and morality and language and relationships and creativity surpasses that of the rest of God's created order. And humanity alone, we read there in Genesis 1, is granted dominion, regency, to be stewards and cultivators of all that God has made. Then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we see a binary introduced. God's image bearers are not just humanity in general, and nor, are, nor is it one sex or one gender. It's two. As verse 27 puts it, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 is a, is a higher level kind of zoomed out picture of this. Genesis 2 zooms in and offers some additional insight to God's design. So we read there that God created Adam, the first man, And for some period of time, we don't know how long, but some period of time, that was it. Uh, He was in the Garden of Eden with other animals and with other plants, other living things, but he alone, he was the sole image bearer. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 jumps off the page if we were to read the whole thing in context. Because in the midst of this refrain, God creating things and saying, it was good, it was good, it was good, in the midst of all this goodness and perfection, All of a sudden, God says, God himself stops and says, oh, something's not good. Something's lacking here. Man should not be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, a scholar named Gordon Wenham points out how important the original Hebrew language is there. A more literal translation of that word fit, a helper fit for him. A more literal translation is what he terms a like opposite. 
a like opposite. The man needs a helper who is the like opposite of him. It has to be another image bearer. Uh, As Adam goes on to say, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, other animals won't do. But nor will it be an exact copy. So think of it this way. This first image bearer needs a complement, not a clone. This first image bearer needs a complement, not a clone. So back to Genesis 1, verse 27. Male and female, God created them. In, in the design of God, gender is not arbitrary. Maleness and femaleness are bound into the very essence of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. There's a massive amount of sameness. Uh, both are image bearers. Both are given dominion. Both are called to steward and cultivate what God has made. But they are not the same. They are not interchangeable. And because we always as Christians want to be known for what we're for and not just what we're against, this serves to showcase the glory of God himself. Think about that. In all the goodness of God's creation, before sin entered the world, before sin fractured or corrupted anything, something was lacking. God saw something lacking. He saw that only a male image bearer was not enough. That a like opposite was needed to fully embody and to fully display the image of God in part of his creation. A pastor friend of mine named Kevin Cawley, who I think also was quoting in here from, from another pastor of, that he uh, read, about, read from, uh, he put it this way. He said, binary gender is not about restriction, but reflection. It's not about restriction, it's about reflection. This gendered pair, these like opposites, more fully reflect the image of God. Together, men and women both release the glories and restrain the weaknesses of the other gender. The coexistence, the co-regency of male and female image bearers together actually more accurately reflects the glory of God. It brings out more of the glory and restrains more of the weakness than if there was no such thing as gender or if gender were arbitrary or if gender were fluid. See, this is all about making good what was not good. This is all about the flourishing of humanity and through them, the flourishing of the world. We try all the time in various aspects, in various parts of our lives to come up with a better design and intent than God, but it's impossible to have a better design and intent than the designer, than God himself. Now before we move on, let me, let me mention that this binary, male and female, is both about sex and gender. It's both biology and psychology. Or really, to use the Bible's framework, it's about both body and soul. So most obviously, uh, it's about bodily, biological, anatomical differences. And in context here, both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 explicitly mention the purposes of sexual intimacy and procreation. Uh, Two becoming one flesh, multiplying and filling the earth. Uh, We'll talk more about sexuality next week. We'll talk more about marriage and singleness the, the week following. But for today, let's simply note how important it is that humanity is a gendered pair of like opposites. Because certainly, God could have designed it differently. He could have created some other way for humanity, for his image bearers to procreate. He could have kept making men from the dust. He could have kept making women from 
bones, instead of putting within them the capacity and the potential to bring more life, more image bearers into the world. So this is about biology. It's about the body. But it's also about the soul. And certainly this is the more complicated to figure out and to navigate. That's the question, right? Are souls gendered? Is the immaterial part of us also gendered? Or is it just biological bodily differences? The image of God is both. It's both. It includes intangible, invisible aspects of our humanity as well as our biology. See, in God's design, both body and soul are always held together. They're always integrated. It actually is great violence. And in the history of the church, some of the earliest heresies in the Christian faith were teachings that sought to to rip the two apart, to elevate one and to demean the other, to say the body is infinitely valuable and the soul doesn't matter, or alternatively to say the soul is infinitely valuable and the body doesn't matter. And two little clues about that here, even in these texts. First, in her like-oppositeness, Eve is called a helper. One who supplies strength is what that term in Hebrew means. And it's in no way demeaning. It's actually used of God himself in other parts of Scripture. But it does establish that there is a difference between a male and a female that is not just anatomical. It's not just the the biological bodily differences. And then second, chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and were not ashamed. What is shame? Shame is a product of the soul. It's a product of the immaterial part of us that feels like we're not enough, that feels like we're not acceptable, that we're not lovable. And do we not know that feeling ourselves in one or a hundred different ways? It's a product not of our biology, but of our soul. Here, there's no shame. When Genesis 2 ends, the male and female image bearers of God, think about this, are naked, physically, bodily, but without any shame. They are fully at home in their own bodies. Adam, in his maleness, in body and soul, is fully at home. Eve, in her femaleness, in body and soul, is fully at home. And this is the reality before sin enters the world, which means that this like-opposite male and female image-bearers of God, it's good. It's good. It's part of God's design. This is not a result of the fracture of sin, of the fall into sin. But, absolutely, sin and its curse have had pervasive and tragic and ruinous effects on gender and on sexuality and on how we seek to pursue maleness and femaleness. So, Let's not only this morning contemplate design, let's also consider second dysphoria. Dysphoria. In Genesis chapter 3, the very next verse, humanity rebels against God. In a world of permissions, uh, they violate the one prohibition there is. Satan, the accuser here in the form of a serpent, manipulates and twists God's words. Uh, The man and the woman believe the lie They sin against God and quite literally break the world. And these realities of gender are at play all throughout that. The woman sins first. But when God comes looking for them after they sin, after they hide, who does he hold responsible first? The man. 
They're both at fault, but there's a disproportionate responsibility placed on Adam. He's supposed to, we find out, been the servant leader. He's supposed to be there and to protect, and he wasn't there, and he didn't protect. And so then, picking it up in verse 16 of Genesis 3, we read that the curse against sin, the curse of sin, likewise has gendered aspects built into it. So you can listen to open ears with this book that we love again, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. This is God's word. Note here that God does not give one blanket curse to all humanity. To the woman, she will experience pain in childbirth. It's directly related to her unique ability to bring new life into the world. God also says that her desire will be contrary to her husband. She'll want to claim that disproportionate responsibility that God has granted to the man, and specifically in a marriage relationship. And related, instead of being a servant leader, instead of laying down his life and his preferences and his comforts for the flourishing of his wife, Adam will be domineering. He will seek to rule over her. And his curse, God goes on to say, involves the ground, thorns and thistles, working the ground by the sweat of his brow. In pain, you will eat of it. Why is that Adam's curse? It's because it's the work that he was doing even before Eve was created. It's not that she didn't join in after she was created. She most certainly did as a co-cultivator of all that God made. But what's happening here in Genesis 3 is an unraveling of creation working backwards. So the curse is going to ruin, it's going to affect their ability to bring new life into the world. It's going to ruin the harmony that's supposed to exist between these like opposites of man and woman. It's also going to ruin the work that Adam was doing before Eve was even there. And then working even further backwards, because Adam came from the ground to the ground, he will return. To the dust, he will return. All that to say, all that to say, is it any wonder that gender dysphoria is such a painful reality? Look at the havoc that sin wreaks. Look at what it does. Look how it breaks and unravels what God made. It's crazy that some people, and some Christians especially, try to write off gender dysphoria as if it's some made-up delusion, as if it's like a hoax that's playing out. It's not a delusion. It's not a delusion. It's as real as real gets. It is a ripple effect of the fracture and the corruption of sin that entered the world here in the garden. It's real distress. It's real pain. It's real brokenness. And we don't even really have time to get into this fully, but there's some amazing words from Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 19. As he teaches about marriage, as he teaches about divorce, he affirms the goodness of marriage. But he also says it's not for everyone. And he talks there specifically about eunuchs. There's some men in the ancient world that, uh, specifically those who worked in, in royal courts around royal women, were castrated. 
They became eunuchs. Uh, others, Jesus speaks about here, were perhaps not physically castrated, but like Jesus himself and like the Apostle Paul, became, in a way, eunuchs. They chose a life of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God. But, but, Matthew 19, verse 10, Jesus also says, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And I so wish that there were more in Scripture about that. I so wish that there was more about how Jesus interacted with people who had been eunuchs from birth. But here is at least this, the Son of God acknowledging both the difficulty and the dignity of an intersex person, of a person who is born male but without a male sex organ or at least a functioning male sex organ. At a minimum, it solidifies for us that there is both, both a good design and dysphoria created by the fall. And that we need to acknowledge the difficulty and that we need to acknowledge the dignity of those who experience dysphoria. Whether it was man-made, eunuchs made so because they were called to a certain position or whether it was from their birth. This is the starting point for faithful presence, to see the design of God, to see the dysphoria that sin can create and then to move with compassion and to move with truth into the relationships, into the, the circles in which God has placed us. So third, let me just very humbly offer some direction for how we can pursue faithful presence. For one, we need to address the bigger picture of identity and sexuality and really, this is it, come face to face with our own brokenness. For every person on the planet, all of us in this room, all of us tuning into this live stream, there's part of the intact image of God in you. And at the very same time, aspects of that image that have been marred and corrupted and broken by sin. This expresses itself in a thousand different ways. For all of us, though, in some way, it affects our views and our practices of gender and sexuality. Are we willing to acknowledge that? Are we willing to own that? And are we willing to, where we need to, pursue repentance? Because if not, then what we proclaim ceases to be the gospel. And it becomes moralism instead. Let's be really this morning. Our salvation, is not, salvation is not expressing your biological sex. And our primary aim as followers of Jesus Christ is not to reconcile people to their biological sex. It's to reconcile people to God. To God. The minute that we forget that, we reduce the gospel into moralism. The gospel ceases to be repent and believe in Jesus and becomes moralistic conformity to a Judeo-Christian worldview, which sounds good maybe, but it is no gospel at all. It has no power to actually help people. And like the Pharisees, it is to heap burdens on the backs of broken people without lifting a finger to help them. So start by seeing your own brokenness. Because as you do, it will humble you. And it will remind you of your own desperation. It will remind you of your need for God, not only to right what has gone so wrong in the world, but to right what has gone wrong in you. It will remind you of the real gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Like me and like you, Jesus came into the world for us. And it will therefore humanize gender dysphoria 
and transgenderism. That these are not simply topics or issues that Christians have to navigate or address. This is men and women created in the glorious image of God, meant to be naked and without shame, but who at present are living crushed under the curse of sin and all of its effects. Two, love beyond blanket affirmation. Don't just come face to face with your brokenness. Love beyond blanket affirmation. Uh, Trans people, people who experience gender dysphoria, desperately need care and support and compassion. They are worthy as image bearers of God of all of our love and our respect and our help. The question, of course, is what is truly caring and compassionate? In our cultural moment, the definition of love has been amputated. It has been reduced down to mean blanket affirmation. And this isn't just true when it comes to gender and sexuality, but the options that are offered to us, broadly speaking, culturally speaking, are either, or at least seem to be either, you affirm everything I want you to affirm about me in my life, or you hate me. Affirm everything I want you to affirm about me in my life, or you hate me. But in God's kingdom, Love is so much more than affirmation. Now, let's not miss this. There is affirmation. And love does not wait to offer that affirmation until there's conformity to the design of God. Right now, you can find and you can affirm the intact image of God in any single person that you cross paths with. So let's do that. Let's not be withholding about that and wait for someone to conform to the moral part of it. Because if we do that, to the extent we do that, we cease to be Christians, we cease to proclaim the gospel, we become moralists instead. But love is more than affirmation. Love also is to lay down on the tracks in front of someone who is blind to the danger that they're in. It is, as Charles Spurgeon once put it, to wrap your arms around someone's knees as they charge headfirst into destruction and to implore them to stay. In November of 2018, a trans woman named Andrea Long Chu, uh, on the eve of gender reconstruction surgery, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. It expressed the immense pain of gender dysphoria uh, remarkably and honestly, Andrea also wrote about how surgery would not resolve that. Andrea wrote this, This is what I want, but there is no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. That shouldn't disqualify me from getting it. No, no amount of pain or continuing justifies the surgery's withholding. Earlier in the article, Andrea had written, quote, My body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it, it will require regular painful attention to maintain. So the pain that's referenced there, that's, that's the pain. Andrea then went on to write, surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want. Surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want. Now I hope when you hear that, it does two things for you. I hope it breaks your heart. The despair and the anguish it is to feel so out of place in your own skin that you would go through that, even acknowledging, recognizing that it probably won't fix anything. Let this wreck you. Let it fill you with compassion for people who experience this. And at the same time, let it wake you up to how the definition of love has changed. That, 
that surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of what. When did love ever mean always giving someone what they wanted? When did love ever mean that? See, at its root here is the same lie from Satan in the garden, questioning the very nature and character of God. Is he good? Does he really give good gifts? Or is he withholding? Is God really the, the true source of delight, or is he my cosmic obstacle to it? Love does not always give everything we want precisely because we are prone to believe lies, precisely because we are so prone to choose destruction instead of delight. Rebecca Pippert put it so well. She wrote, Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, against the lie and the sin that destroys. Or as Julie Slattery put it, and I would highly recommend her work in uh, sexuality and, and topics related to it. She said this, validating brokenness by redefining health will set people free. Validating brokenness by redefining health will not set people free. So the opportunity in this cultural moment, the need for faithful presence is to let your words and let your life throw a wrench in the gears of this counterfeit framework. Instead of having to choose between blanket affirmation or hatred, Choose love. Affirm the intact image of God that you perceive in people while standing against the lie that seeks to destroy them. And then finally, finally, run into the darkness. Run into the darkness. In our cultural moment, there are two things playing out concurrently. There's the brokenness of gender dysphoria, which in real people's lives should be met with our tears, and with our love, and with our help. And there's also overlapping, at the same time, the hostility of trans advocacy, which should be met still by our love, and by our humility, but also with our resistance. As we love real people, we're going to need to speak up, we're going to need to show up in the public square in a way that will no doubt cost us. In the past decade or so, our culture has experienced a, a massive amount of change at warp speed. Just observationally, think about that for a second. Some of you were here and part of this church family five years ago in 2015. In 2015, that's when Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, and that October uh, was celebrated as Woman of the Year. That era, which I'm, maybe that's not the right word, it does feel like a different era in some ways, um, was maybe the, the beginning of uh, trans people being more outsiders in society and moved into a place of not only acceptance, but, but celebration as well. That was just five years ago. Fast forward now to 2020, it is now radical and unthinkable to even suggest that gender is binary and not fluid. Just a few weeks ago, those of you who are Harry Potter fans probably already are aware of this, uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, author of the Harry Potter series, was lambasted, I mean, just raked over the coals for some comments that she made insisting that, that women should remain a biological category. Actors from the Harry Potter movies, fans, uh, have condemned her and distanced themselves from her. Fan sites for Harry Potter have removed her picture and stopped linking to her website. An author uh, for The Atlantic, Helen Lewis, put it, pointed out that, that in, in many ways, J.K. Rowling has become the villain in her story. She's become Voldemort, of whom must not be named, the one who must not be named. 
In 2016, which was the last year I could find some statistics for this, 2016 saw a 1,000% increase in the number of children expressing gender dysphoria. Now, in some ways, there's a huge opportunity in that because maybe people who felt like they could never talk about this with anyone before feel a freedom to, to talk about that. So praise God for that. But at the same time, Jeff Barrows at the Christian Medical and Dental Association says that between 75 and 95% of children who, who suffer from gender dysphoria will see it spontaneously resolve as they grow up, as they go through puberty. So not just biblically, but medically, scientifically, the best treatment from a medical standpoint is no treatment. It's to go nowhere near hormone therapy and nowhere near gender reassignment. But to suggest that today, in our society, will draw ire, will draw spite from people. What I would say to those of you who are following in the way of Christ, be willing to bear that burden and cost. Be willing to bear that burden and cost, and not as a self-righteous chip on your shoulder, but because truly, as the Apostle Paul put it, truly in humility, you count others more significant than yourself. And you can't stand the thought of fellow image bearers suffering under the lie, suffering under the curse of sin. As a Christian, whether you realize this or not, you actually signed up to be reviled and not revile in return. You signed up to be wounded all the time in your life from all different kinds of people, from all different places, but not to wound other people back. To be hated even in some cases, but not to return that with hatred. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to do that, but it's the only faithful response, and it's the way that God in Christ has treated you. See, our enmity, our hostility against him was not met with hostility, but with love. With Jesus himself, God the Son, running into the darkness as the light and life and salvation of the world. So yes, our culture's understanding of gender is increasingly messed up and entrenched in that position. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has purchased people with his own blood and he prayed in John 17 that not to take them out of the world. Now, even as long as we're going today, we've barely scratched the surface. I pray that this has been helpful. I pray that it invites more consideration, more conversations that we can clarify more and more in days to come. Uh, if you are someone who experiences gender dysphoria. God, let this actually be true. I pray that we would be a church where you feel received, where you feel welcomed, uh, where you feel loved for who you are, for what you find in your life, in your body, and in your soul right now. I pray that if you're willing to risk the vulnerability, if you're willing to risk the certainty that broken people like me and other people in this room will respond in very imperfect and very broken ways to you as you share that. I pray that you will come to see and come to share in the grace that is ours in Jesus, not because of any conformity to morality, but solely because we've been reconciled to God through the work of Christ. And whether or not you are reconciled to your biological sex soon, whether or not you are ever reconciled to your biological sex fully in this life, I pray that you will be able to come and to hear the good news of Jesus and be reconciled to God. I'll close with this. In Acts chapter 8, one of the first deacons in Jesus' church, deacon named Philip, meets an Ethiopian eunuch 
on the road back from Jerusalem. We don't know if this man was born a eunuch or or made one, probably the latter because he's a member of the queen's court. But when Philip meets him, he's in his chariot reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Philip gets the opportunity in that moment to share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus with him. He says all these prophecies about the one who would bear the iniquity of sin in his own body would set us free and forgive our sin. All of that's been fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the incredible thing. Just down the scroll from where this eunuch is reading, in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, there's these words. In a day where foreigners, where eunuchs, who were each outsiders in their own way, one from a nationalistic standpoint, one from a sexual standpoint, were excluded from God's temple, were not permitted to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, sees a day where this will not be so. And he writes in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, Let not the foreigner who who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And in Acts 8, in Acts 8, an Ethiopian eunuch is given an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. He hears Philip share the news about Jesus with him and he says, what keeps me from being baptized? Nothing. Nothing keeps him from being baptized. Because in Jesus, the sexual outsiders, the sexually broken, are acknowledged, are dignified, and are invited into the family of God. Let us run into the darkness of our day. May those who feel so out of place in their own skin be met with our love and in Jesus Christ receive an everlasting name that is better than sons and daughters. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, have mercy upon us because we desperately need it. We desperately need your mercy and grace to navigate our own brokenness, to repent of the ways that we live out the curse instead of your beautiful design. And we desperately need your grace to walk with others who experience that in ways that are different from the way we experience it. Meet us. Lead us. Help us to see the beauty of the invitation that is held out to us in Jesus Christ. We bless you this morning for this, the gift of your word, and we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard, to live in ways that honor you above all. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.